If you would turn with me now to your copy of God's Word, we look at Job chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. I did stop a little short on our scripture reading in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is because, Lord willing, we will return to it and mention it somewhat in our sermon today. And I thought it might be beneficial to have those portions of 1 Corinthians 15 closer to our sermon text. Now then, please hear the word of God. Oh, that my words were written... Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Let us pray. Almighty God, we ask that you would bless your word, that you would bless us in the hearing of it, and that you would purify the mouth of your servant in the preaching of it. We ask, O Lord, that you would be magnified, that you would give us faith and understanding and hearts to hear and believe and obey. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. In the Apostles' Creed, which we confessed together earlier, we confess that we believe in the resurrection of the body. In this passage, which we have just read, we have St. Job's confession. And in the midst of his trials... Job, that great patriarch, confessed his faith, and he confessed his faith in the resurrection of the body. We're going to look at Job's confession in these verses. We will see, first of all, his confidence, confidence, secondly, the content of his confession, and thirdly, the comfort of his confession. So, the confidence of his confession the content of his confession, and the comfort of his confession. First of all, consider the confidence with which Job confessed his faith. And remember what is going on in Job's life right now. Job is sitting there on a dung pile that had once been his empire, scratching himself with a broken piece of pottery, mourning the loss of his children, arguing with his wife, And having his friends come and accuse him of sin. Job is at this point wishing he were dead, though he's alive. Job is responding to his accusers, his friends who sat there for a time silently, but then began to lob at him accusations. The devil mortally wounded Job. He's a dying man. He expects to die. And Job's friends have come along to finish the poor guy off. The devil smote his flesh. But his friends have come along to strike at his soul, his conscience. To 
be agents of the devil by accusing their brother. And so this is where Job is when he issues this great confession. But notice the words of confidence in his confession. Oh, that my words were written. I have news for you, Job. (laughs) They've been written. (laughs) Prayer answered. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. This is the confidence of Job's faith. He envisions this pen of iron filled with molten lead that could write into the rocks. He wants his testimony to be recorded as posterity for all generations to see. This is what I believe. Job is a man of confidence and certainty. In our age, Job would be be considered prideful and arrogant because he believes things with conviction and he says what he believes. Beloved, that we could be more like Job and less like the people of this world. That we would have the confidence in God that we could say, take my words and carve them in the granite. I want them to be a memorial. Job wants a tombstone on which it is inscribed, here lies Job. His Redeemer lives, and in his flesh he shall see him. That's Job's confession. He speaks of this pen, this iron pen that is able to write into the rocks as lead comes out of there and it as its ink. It is sometimes helpful as you go through a graveyard to, to look at the tombstones and see the things that people have written as their last words. What do they want the world to know about them? Job wants the world to know that he expects to be risen from the dead. Sometimes you can, in the cemetery, see what people have wanted the world to know. Sometimes it's helpful, sometimes it's not so much. I heard of one where on his tombstone a man had it written, See, I told you I was sick. (laughs) Job, however, is a dying man. He knows he's dying. And and if he could pick out the words on him, What do you want on your tombstone? Not cheese and pepperoni, says Job. I want... My Redeemer lives, and in my flesh I shall see him. Look at the certainty of his confession here in verses 25 and 26. Twice he says, I know. And then again in verse 26, this I know. Job did not know why he suffered. Do you notice that in the book? You can read all 42 chapters of the book of Job, and you will not discover God revealing to Job why he suffered. We read it in chapters 1 and 2 when there's a conversation between God and the devil. Job does not know that. Job died not knowing why he suffered. Job did not know why he would suffer. He did not know how this trial would end. But he did know something. He had confidence. He had no knowledge of what would happen with this earthly life. In fact, he had no expectation that all of his possessions would be restored. That's not his hope. In fact, he knew that he had lost children. He was not expecting that they would be returned to him. But let's suppose all of his earthly possessions could be restored. What about his name? His friends still saw him as guilty. His reputation 
he had no confident expectation his reputation would be restored. There were a lot of things Job did not know. But he speaks of knowing something. This I know, says Job. And verse 25, my Redeemer lives. Now we move then from the confidence with which Job asserts his confession to the content of the confession itself. Job is confident that his Redeemer lives. And you all know that a Redeemer is one who has the power to rescue or deliver you from some danger. The Old Testament has the concept of the kinsman redeemer like Boaz. We have the concept of the redeemer, one who will pay your debts or defend your family or perhaps avenge a murder. Or maybe marry the widow of a deceased brother. In other words, a redeemer is someone who has the power to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. And this is what Job knows, that he has a redeemer, and that redeemer lives. Now notice that Job not only says that there's a redeemer, but he says, my redeemer. Beloved, water at the bottom of a well is of no use to you if you don't have some means to bring it up. Gold off in a mine somewhere is of no use to you if you can't get it out. A redeemer in the Bible somewhere is of no use to you if he is not your redeemer. Job, of course, is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, that promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. His redeemer, his very own You see, you must possess Jesus Christ. He must not be the Redeemer. He must be my Redeemer. Job says, my Redeemer lives. Remember when the women went looking for the Lord Jesus Christ? And they're at the tomb and the angel says to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was in Galilee, saying the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, and the third day rise again. This is the kind of confidence that Job has. His Redeemer lives, and he lives never to die again. Job, speaking before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, had confidence in the Lord's resurrection. Job knows that his Redeemer shall stand upon the earth. Look at he says, he shall stand upon the earth. He's speaking, by the way, the word earth here is literally dust. He will stand. He will arise and stand upon that dust. He's speaking, of course, of Christ's triumphant return. His final victory over that last enemy. And beloved, what is the last enemy? The last enemy is death. And Christ will return to be triumphant over that last enemy. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, Since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. This is Job's confession. He has confidence not only in his own bodily resurrection, but in the resurrection of his Redeemer, And it it is the resurrection of his Redeemer that makes it possible that he himself will be raised from the dead. Do you see that? 
how your hope in a resurrection is connected to the truth that Jesus himself was raised from the dead. Christ is what we call the first fruits of the resurrection. And we are his crop. We are the rest of the field. So Job has confidence in the risen Christ, the Christ who did not stay dead but could not stay dead. Death could not lay claim to him forever. And so because he rose from the dead, you who believe in him have the confidence that you too will rise from the dead. Death, that last enemy, will be destroyed. Now Job's confidence all stands or falls based upon the Redeemer. You see, although Job is innocent, he does not rest upon that innocence. Although Job is a righteous man, remember this about Job. God said he was a righteous man. There is none like him in all the earth. Job does not rest upon his righteousness. Although Job has been blessed, we saw how many cattle and children and all these things, he learned that could be stripped away in an instant, in the blink of an eye. He does not rest on those things. You see, Job rests upon a redeemer because he needs someone who can do for him the thing that he cannot do. And Job has now found himself in a place of suffering and affliction that only God can deliver him from. He continues, but he shall see God, and I shall see God. That's his hope, that he will see God. God, who in Job's suffering appears to have hidden himself away, right? God is seeming to Job to be out of sight. He's hidden. When you suffer, doesn't it seem like that? That God is so far away, if only he could come here and talk to you? Well, Job says, I will see God. That is the saint's delight. Paul says that in in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, he says that we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when? On the last day when the Lord raises us up. But then we will see him face to face. Now we know in part. But then we shall know just as we are known. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Dear friends, if you believe in the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, have confidence. One day you will see God. That is your confident expectation. That is your hope. That is what you are living for, is that you will one day see your maker. Those who trust in the Lord shall see him, even as Job says he shall see God. God is hidden in our afflictions. God is hidden from us, as it were, right now, but you will see him in the face of your Redeemer. Now notice when Job says he will see God. He does not say merely after he dies, but he says, look at this, after my skin is destroyed. Job is speaking very plainly of his death. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know. He knows that he will die. He has been struck with a mortal wound from which he will not recover. You don't have the grievous injuries that Job is described as having and expect to recover. 
He knows that he will die. He will go to the grave. The worms will eat his body. He will dissolve. He will decay. And his body will return to the dust from which it was taken. So too will happen with each of you. Unless the Lord returns before that time, you will go the way that all of the creatures of this earth go. You will die. You will at one time lay down and not get back up. Your bodies will dissolve and return to the dust from which you were made. But it is after this that he expects he shall see God. You see, his expectation is not in the immediate life, nor even immediately after death. He is looking forward to something more than that. After his body has decayed, he will see God. Then he clarifies in verse 26, in my flesh. You see, man consists of flesh. He is made of body and soul. Remember when the Lord God made the man from the dust of the earth? He gave him a body, and then he breathed the soul into him. And man then lives as body and soul. And death is the rendering asunder of that body and soul. And life in Christ is the rejoining of that body and soul. And that's what Job is looking forward to. He does not look forward to living as some disembodied spirit. Oh yes, when Job died, his soul went to heaven and he was certainly relieved, right? He was certainly delivered, but that was not the final hope of his confession. The final hope of his confession is that God who made man body and soul would one day raise up Job and restore that body and soul in the resurrection, He's speaking of the bodily resurrection, and don't you doubt it. He believes in the resurrection of the body. Notice in verse 27, it's for himself and not another. Verse 27, he says, Whom I shall see for myself. By the way, this is confirmed. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job is going to see God with his eyes. He's not talking about beholding God in his soul. He's not talking about beholding God in his mind. He's talking about seeing him with his eyes, looking at him, seeing the features of God. But notice in verse 27, he shall see for himself. And my eye shall behold and not another. Job will be able to see God apart from a mediator, right? Like this morning, we will take the Lord's Supper and God has given us the Lord's Supper to represent his promises to us. And in the supper, we see the broken body and the spilled blood. But do you understand that there will be a day in heaven when that, that will be unnecessary? We, don't, we won't need these things to help us to see God. We will with our eyes behold him. We will not need priests or prophets or pastors or sermons. We will see him for ourselves. We will immediately behold the Lord in his glory. Don't ask me exactly how that works. I don't know. But we will, with our eyes, behold God 
Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Thomas, remember Thomas, who we call Doubting Thomas, but maybe we could also call him Believing Thomas, right? He, he was a little late to the party, but he came around. Nevertheless, remember Thomas said, unless I see the hands, in, in his hands, the print of the nails... And if I put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And Jesus answered him after he showed him. He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You see, belief comes first and then comes seeing. And that's where Job is. He believes that God will raise him up. And because of that, he has confidence that he will see God. Thomas, in his moment of doubt, had it backwards. He wanted to see And then believe. God is saying to you, believe and you will see. Now, Job very plainly here has confessed that by the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, he himself will be raised from the dead in his own body and brought into the presence of God. Not everyone has read Job this way. Some might say Job being so many years before the first advent of Christ and Job being in the Old Testament, could he really have spoken of the resurrection? Could he speak of Christ's second advent before the first advent even happened? Well, let me say a few things in response to this. First of all, it is clear that Job did not expect temporal deliverance. I won't belabor this, but let me just read to you a portion from Job chapter 17, verses 11 through 16. My days are past. See if this sounds like a man who is looking for earthly salvation. My days are past. My purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. They change the night into day. The light is near, they say, in the face of darkness. If I wait for the grave as my house, If I make my bed in the darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, you are my mother and my sister, where then is my hope? As for my hope, who can see it? Will they go down to the gates of Sheol? Shall we have rest together in the dust? Job was a dying man coming to terms with his death, and his hope of salvation was not earthly deliverance. It had to go beyond that. You know this passage, Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Trust him for what? (laughs) Who's going to trust him? A body lying in the grave? No, Job will trust God to be his God, the God who lives forevermore and the God who will raise him up on the last day. Now, we know that the Old Testament saints, like Job, believed in the bodily resurrection. I'm just going to give a couple of examples. Psalm 71, verse 20. You who have shown me great and severe troubles shall revive me again and bring me up again from the depths of the earth. To come up from the depths of the earth, what does that sound like, beloved? Put your New Testament glasses on when you read the Old Testament because they had the same faith substantially as you. Daniel, chapter 12, verse 2. Those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
That sounds like Jesus at the Olivet Discourse. That's Daniel. One more, Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust. For your dew is like the dew of herbs. And the earth shall cast out the dead. And the earth shall give up its dead. It sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? Now, from the book of Hebrews, we learn that Abraham believed in the resurrection of the dead, didn't he? Abraham, when he was tested, in Hebrews chapter 11, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, his son, whom he had received by promise. And remember, the promise depended on Isaac. And so Abraham is bringing his son Isaac to sacrifice him. And how could he do that? Hebrews tells us, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham said, well, God's going to have to keep his promise, right? So I guess I can kill the kid and God's going to have to raise him from the dead. And Hebrews continues, from much he also received him in a figurative sense, right? Because he did not have to kill his son, Figuratively speaking, he received him back as if he were raised from the dead. Now, in the New Testament, in the time when Christ came, it is clear that believers in the Old Testament expected a resurrection. Remember when Jesus raised Lazarus, and he was talking to Martha, Lazarus' sister, and he said to her, your brother will rise again. And what does she say? Don't be silly. You haven't even risen from the dead yet. How can anyone rise from the dead? No, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's what a faithful Jew believed from the Old Testament scriptures. She was expecting that though Lazarus died, yes, on the last day when the Lord comes, he will raise him up. When Paul was on trial before Felix, he was careful to say, I have only taught what is taught in the law and prophets. You can read this in Acts chapter 24 verses 14 and 15. He says, I only taught what's in the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to speak of the resurrection of the dead. You see, Paul says that the law and the prophets teach the bodily resurrection. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. What he's saying is, Jesus was raised in fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament must teach the resurrection of the dead. Otherwise, how could Jesus be raised according to it? Do you see what I am saying? How on earth could Jesus be raised according to the scriptures if those scriptures don't teach that he was going to be raised? And Job, I submit to you, is one of those scriptures. That when Job says... My Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand on the earth. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I would ask, if Job did not look forward to the resurrection of his body, why did he speak as if he did? (laughs) Why did he speak as if he did? Why did he talk about seeing God in his flesh after his skin is gone with his eyes? Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said this, If it had been Job's desire to foretell the advent of Christ and his own sure resurrection, I cannot see what better words he would have used. 
And if those truths are not here taught, referring to this passage, then language must have lost its original object and must have been employed to mystify and not to explain, to conceal and not reveal. What, I ask, does the patriarch mean if not that he shall rise again when the Redeemer stands upon the earth? Charles Spurgeon. That's pretty good words for a Baptist. (laughs) Former Baptist. He's in heaven now. He's now a Presbyterian. (laughs) The Geneva Bible summarizes the case this way. In this, in these words, Job chapter 19, in this, Job declares plainly that he had full hope that both the soul and the body would enjoy the presence of God in the last resurrection. So then, Job confessed the bodily resurrection, even as we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Now, we might have some questions. What will it be like? Now, Job has been dead a long time, hasn't he, beloved? He's been dead a long time. Certainly, his body has gone back to the dust. You know, God first made man from the dust, right? It shouldn't be difficult for God to reconstitute a man from the dust. This shouldn't trouble us. This shouldn't, I think God will be able to bring all the right parts and pieces and whatever else to the right person and put things in. He he managed to do that when he made man in the first instance. I think he will be able to do that when he remakes you. God will not have any problem doing that. No matter how long or whether your body has been blown to smithereens or burned up or whatever else takes place, certainly. You know, when the Sadducees came to Christ to question him about the resurrection, he said to them two things. You don't know the scriptures. Two, you don't understand the power of God. Those are the two possible objections to the resurrection at the end of the day. You don't know what the Bible says, and you don't understand the power of God. But, beloved, when we grow in our understanding of what the Bible says, and when we believe in the power of God, the resurrection of the body is a matter of course. It is very simply what it is that we look forward to. Now, then, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 42 and 44, Paul says that this body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. That means when you die, you're planted. There's corruption. You've got sickness, you've got disease, you've got pain, you've got ailments, you've got all of these problems. But it's raised in incorruption. Okay, know that about the bodily, the bodily resurrection. It will be from corruption to incorruption. He continues, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Dishonor to glory. And think of the dishonor, not only the things about ourselves that we think are dishonorable, but the dishonor of sin, right? The ravages and effects of sin all the way from our first father, Adam, until now. Our own personal sins and the sins of this world and all of these things. It's going to be a movement from dishonor to honor. And you think that's what Job is hoping on here, sitting on this dung heap, scratching himself with the broken pottery, mourning the loss of his children, wondering why, why, why. He can't answer that, but he says, I'm going to be planted in dishonor, but raised up in honor. Paul continues, it is sown in weakness, 
It is raised in power. <sighs> Beloved, we have seen the weakness of the human body, its frailty. It's subjected to all of these things. But when it's raised, it will no longer be subjected to those things. You know that when you are raised again, it will be immortal, not subject to death again. Jesus Christ, who died, was raised again, shall not die again, and those whom he raises shall never die again. Think about this. What if a a doctor could prescribe for you something that will give you everlasting life? Jesus says, whoever believes in him will have everlasting life. You have a prescription for everlasting life. Everyone who believes in him has that guarantee. You will live forever, and you will live forever with a body, just as God made you, body and soul. So this body will be sown a natural body, but then raised a spiritual body. To be sown a natural body means a body that's subjected to sin, subjected to death, subjected to weakness, all of these kinds of things, but it will be raised a spiritual body. Now a spiritual body means a body that is fit for spiritual service, a body that is controlled by God the Holy Spirit a body that is suitable to live with God in heaven. This body, where we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, will be like Christ's, right? It is said that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, remember with the first fruits, they would take the first appearance of some crop, take it out and dedicate that to God in the hopes that God would bless the rest of the crop. But what's, indic- what's helpful to us here is to know that Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He's God's initial harvest. God expects much more harvest. There will be many more resurrections. But we will be of the same nature, the same kind of resurrection as Jesus Christ. You see that? He, we are the same kind of fruit as him in this analogy. So our bodies then will be analogous to his resurrected body. So if you want to gain an understanding what will our bodies be like, Read the gospel accounts of Christ's resurrection and the things that you see about his body. You will find all kinds of interesting details that give us a clue of what our bodies will be like. Now we see this is really no problem for God to do this. Therefore, Job had great confidence in it. And he confessed the bodily resurrection on the basis of the risen, triumphant Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us to our third and final point, the comfort of his confession. At the end of verse 27, Job says, How my heart yearns within me. It's as if he had said, All my desires are summed up in this. This will crown and complete everything. Let me have this one thing, and my heart will be satisfied. I won't ask for anything else. That's enough. That's it. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That's his confidence. That's what he hopes. And that brings him comfort. He is comforted knowing that whatever is taken from him, whatever the devil does to his flesh now, God has in store for him a resurrected body from which he will see God 
He will cry out for the living God. But the point, of course, here is not merely Job's comfort. Job is comforted that he has this strong conviction that he will see God, right? He has a redeemer, and that redeemer is going to raise him up. But this is not just a story about Job. If you leave here today and you don't have the same comfort that Job had, this is a waste of time. You must have this same comfort. You must have the kind of comfort that says, my heart yearns, I long for the day. I expect it. I confidently, no matter what happens, I trust the Lord to raise me up and I will see him with my eyes. You must believe it. You must believe in the resurrection of the body. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in verses 14 through 17, the apostle Paul says this. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. And your faith is also empty. If the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Do you see this? If the dead are not raised, Jesus Christ did not pay for your sins. And at the end of the day, if you do not believe in the resurrection of the dead... You have no hope for the forgiveness of your sins. Because if the dead are not raised, Jesus Christ was not raised. But if Jesus Christ was not raised, then he did not pay for your sins. And there you are. You're still carrying your sins. No hope of forgiveness. You should look forward to death in the sense that after the Lord raises you up, there will be a reunion between your body and your soul. Imagine that day. The people who are currently dead right now, the saints who are dead right now, their souls are in heaven with Christ, okay? Their bodies are resting in their graves or wherever their final resting place is. But one day, by the power of God, they will be rejoined. It will be a reunion. You know, just just a little while ago, I traveled. I was away from my wife for two weeks, away from my one flesh. And when I saw her again, it was, a, it was a splendid reunion, right? I was happy to see her again. And, and there's going to be a reunion like that between your body and your soul. They will be happy to see each other. God will put them back where they go. And they will again be together. So you should look forward to that reunion of the body and the soul. Even as you feel death pulling them apart, right? As you face death, that's why death is so terrifying, Because it is removing, it is ripping our immaterial, invisible soul away from our physical body. And it's unnatural, and it's because of sin, and it's painful, and it's scary. But know this, Christian, just as God raised Jesus from the dead and put his soul and his body back together, so too he will do for you. Let this resurrection, this hope of the resurrection, comfort you in sickness. You are sick. You suffer things. This may be the sickness that ends in your death. We pray that's not the case. We take medicine and hope to stave it off. But know this. You will die. You will die. Consider the resurrection of your body as something to comfort you in times of sickness. Do you have loved ones who are suffering and facing death? This is what you want them to know. This is what you want them to know. 
By all means, pray for their healing. By all means, provide the best care you can. But this is what you want them to know. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he die, yet he will live forever. Do you see that? That is what you want. This is the hope in facing sickness and death. And this is how we can have courage in the face of difficulties. This is how we can have courage even in the face of persecution. Because whatever anyone can do us, though they might slay us, God is going to raise our bodies from the dead. We will see him with our eyes. Why? Because our Redeemer lives. Now, in order to have this comfort, dear friends, you must examine yourselves. Jesus said this in John chapter 5, verse 25 through 29. I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And then again in a couple of verses later, he says this, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What I want you to see here in John chapter 5 is that Jesus is speaking of two resurrections. The book of Revelation refers to one as the first resurrection and the second resurrection. The first resurrection is what we call regeneration, being born again. Those who are born again, in this first instance, those who hear the voice of the Son of God and the preaching of the Word of God, that's the first resurrection. And it is those who are alive in the first resurrection who can have a confident expectation in the second resurrection. If you have not been raised in the first resurrection, you will not be raised to glory in the second resurrection. What I mean by that is if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, your Redeemer who lives, if he is not your Redeemer, you will be raised. But you will not be raised to glory. You will be raised to dishonor. So you must examine yourself. How do you know this? Do I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I accepting his word as my hope? You see, this is why we, one of the, the, the fact of the resurrection shows us that God cares about our bodies. Right? God, care, God invented the human body. He cares about it. Even though it is now marred by sin, God still cares about physical bodies. And it's important for us to glorify God with our bodies. Since God will raise your body, it's important to him. And know that God will glorify the bodies that glorify him. So if you're using your body, for instance, for sexual immorality, or for drunkenness or dissipation, or for any kind of manner of wickedness, you shouldn't expect your body to be raised to glory. You should expect it to be raised to the dishonor which it deserves. See, when I talk about glorifying God with your body, I'm not talking about food and drink and exercise and medicine and these kinds of things. So those, those things have their place. I am talking about using your body as an instrument of righteousness to please God rather than using it as an instrument of wickedness to please yourself. But if you are using your body to dishonor God, why wouldn't God raise your body to dishonor? It appears you are in love with dishonor, 
why should you expect to be raised to honor and glory? You see, I have to warn you, there is great hope in the resurrection of the body, but there's a warning here. It's not just the righteous who will be raised by the power of Christ. The wicked, too, shall be resurrected, and they will be judged and sentenced to everlasting punishment. Our shorter catechism says the bodies of the just by the spirit of Christ and by virtue of his resurrection as their head shall be raised in power, spiritual and incorruptible, and made like his glorious body. And the bodies of the wicked shall be raised up in dishonor by him as an offended judge. I have heard about posthumous trials, right, in which a man, after his death, they dug up his bones and put the bones on trial and sentence him again and then punish the bones. That's vengeance, beloved. That is vengeance. But isn't that what God is promising to do? He's going to raise up not just the bones. He's going to raise up those bones and put the flesh back on them and then put that man on trial and punish that man in his body. That's the vengeance of God against those who hate him. There will be a trial, and God will raise not just the righteous, but also the wicked. So we've seen here in this passage Job's confession, right? The certainty with which... He confesses that he knows these things. And we see that in the midst of his trials, Job was comforted by this confident expectation of the bodily resurrection. The resurrection, first of all, of his Redeemer, and then secondly, the resurrection of himself because of his faith in that Redeemer. He knew that the risen Lord Jesus Christ would conquer death for him and raise him up on the last day. Dear friends, let this be your confession. Let this be an encouragement to you to have confidence in these truths. Let these things bring comfort to all who believe them. Let us pray. Our blessed God, we ourselves have never seen a resurrection. We ourselves have not known these things, but we take them by faith. We hear of them in your word. Oh God, grant us faith. Let us know that Jesus is our redeemer, that he lives forever and that he will raise us, and we shall see you in our flesh with our own eyes. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.